Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil. I hope that you're well. I am fine. I've just started a new job in the last week or so. I'm shitting myself because I feel very rusty and underprepared and freaked out. And filming during COVID is extremely odd, though I'm so excited and grateful to be back at work. But oh, I feel like a beginner again. I wonder if any of you are going through the same thing now that everyone's getting vaccinated, the world's opening back up. Are any of you facing anxiety about the world opening back up? I've expressed that before during many of my intros, my fear of who I am and how the hell I'm going to cope at something called a party, if I ever go to one of those again. Anyway, I am, I'll keep you posted, I guess, as best as I can about how I'm, how I'm doing on this new job. I think you'll just be able to gauge it from the tension in my voice, but wish me luck. Now, Today's episode means a lot to me. It's a conversation I've wanted to have for ages and I didn't quite know how I was going to go about it. If you have been following me for a while, you might know that I am obsessed with how damaging tabloid media is, in particular to women. I really believe in the system of build women up specifically to rip them down. And I've had conversations before on this podcast. Just last week, I had Kelly Rowland on the podcast being extraordinary. If you have not heard that episode, please go back and listen to it. She's so amazing. And I feel as though not enough people in the world, even though she's got 10 million followers on Instagram, still that is not enough people in the world knowing what an, just a gem and an icon this woman is. So go back and listen to that. But she and I touched on, you know, media interference in her career what it was like dealing with that much misogyny, so many lies. And while it's all good and well and so important to have this conversation with those who are suffering from this dynamic, it's also really important to have this conversation with those who were on the other side with one of the journalists. And I just so happen to know someone who dipped out of tabloid journalism about eight years ago. He just was fed up. He could see the ugliness and he just didn't want anything more to do with such a horrifying industry. He'd seen so many awful things and just been a part of so many things that he was feeling ashamed of and uncomfortable with. And so long before this Britney documentary came out, long before the Paris Hilton documentary came out, long before Meghan Markle even was a name that many of us knew, this person had left. His name is Dean Piper, and he's a really, really wonderfully open, sincere, accountable, intelligent, and good person. And he came onto this podcast, which I thought was really brave because not a lot of people 
who have been in tabloid culture or who are ever want to own up to any of their part in the rampant misogyny that seeps from tabloid media into our society. But Dean just came on with nothing to hide. And we just had a very soothing and healing conversation about all of that, where I got to ask him what it's like, you know, what goes through the mind of someone who's in tabloid culture? How does it work? What is the system of build up and rip down? And he answered a lot of my questions and I just found it really interesting and and an important listen because it's great to finally meet one of the makers, even though he doesn't do it now. He was someone who did at a very high level for a long time. And so perhaps if you are someone who reads these articles or who clicks on those websites, who clicks on the pictures, who shares them, who shares the memes, don't worry, we're all there with you. I've done it too. It's important to understand the inner workings of what it is that you're buying into, that you're accidentally maybe even funding with your clicks, with your shares, with your algorithms. This episode is not just about tabloid media or celebrity. It's also about public accountability, the things that we can do as members of the public to protect people in the public eye, but mostly women and mostly just taking into account that, fine, even if you don't give a shit about public figures because they're super privileged and really who cares? I don't mind that. I'm I'm all here for however anyone would feel about uh, you know, not wanting to be protective over the most protected people in the world. I, I totally get that. But we have to think about the fact that this culture bleeds into schools, it bleeds into offices, it bleeds into workplaces everywhere. And so it is important for us to combat it in order to make sure that we build a safer world for us and future generations. And with everything going on this week, like poor old Chloe Kardashian, who we don't discuss in this episode because we recorded it just before this mess of her posting uh, lots of uh, pictures of herself on holiday, you know, clearly breathing in so her ribs are exposed and very stylized, posed photographs, uh, quite possibly quite edited. And then someone else posted a picture of her unedited and she looked a bit different. She looked fantastic in the unedited photograph. In my opinion, much better than she does in any edited photograph. She looks like a real person. She looks beautiful. She looks happy. She looks free. She's not closing her eyes and sucking in her stomach till she can't breathe. She just looks free and young and cool. And sadly, she sees that photograph and just sees only flaws. And so she tried to get that photograph taken down off the internet this perfectly fine photograph. And as soon as you try and do something like that, as soon as you start to take extreme actions to stop the world from finding out about something, that is often when it becomes the most viral because that's just human nature and people want to do and see what is forbidden and it's just been a fucking mess. And as much as I have a, you know, I have made my problems with the Kardashians known over the years because I hate that they do perpetuate these false edited ideals and beauty standards that they uphold, which frustrate me. I I also feel really fucking bad for them. And I've said this all along, that they wouldn't be this obsessed with diet culture, with their appearance. They wouldn't probably promote this much stuff around their aesthetic if they hadn't been so bullied and scrutinised by the media but also by the public. Anyone who's ever shared any articles, fat shaming them, commenting on their looks, 
even to just complain about the article, but mostly any of us who've ever shared those articles or those memes, who've ever enjoyed the gossip around the Kardashians when people are making fun of the way they look, we've all been part of the problem. We've all perpetuated their perpetuation, is that a word? Of this cycle of fat phobia and self-hate. And so again, it feels like a very timely moment to discuss tabloid media, the public, our obsession with women, our obsession with shitting on women. This is just an episode that I've been hoping for for ages and I'm so lucky that Dean was willing to come on and be vulnerable with me about it. So please enjoy, honestly, one of my favourite chats I've had in a while with the excellent Welcome to I Way. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm good. Really good. I haven't seen you Chilling. in years. I have not seen you in bloody years. I mean, we do go way back, don't we? Like we used to do the circuit like nobody else. Yeah. So I uh, <laughs> I started in this business in about probably 2009, early 2009. And I met you at the very beginning of my career. You were a journalist. Mm. I was a young TV, new TV host and, you know, talent and, uh, and this was a, it was a scary time in the rise of tabloid culture, just as I had entered the industry. And you were one of the only nice journalists that I met in my entire time, uh, as a public figure in the UK. And you have had such, uh, an incredible ride, um, in and out of celebrity showbiz culture. Yeah. And so given everything that's happened with the recent uh, Britney Spears documentary, the Paris Hilton documentary, and also the new old clips of Lindsay Lohan that have been surfacing of how she's been mistreated by, by you know, like big mainstream media figures uh, like Letterman, etc. And then also, of course, what we saw earlier this year with Meghan Markle and the, the way she was hounded by the media and the ongoing way she's been hounded for the last four years. I couldn't think of anyone I would rather... Oh, okay, Dean is holding up a <laughs> Harry and Meghan cup in solidarity. Um, yeah. I wanted to talk to someone who'd been on the inside of the machine, someone who could break mm. down tabloid culture, showbiz culture, celebrity culture for us all, so we could understand how we got to this point and and what the mentality is behind it. What is the goal and and what is the impact of that, not just on the celebrities, but on our society and also on the journalists who have to participate in that themselves. And as someone who left, what, eight years ago, seven years ago? Yeah, I think it was about eight years ago. I mean, just to start off with, you could not have broken into the industry at a worse time. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, literally the worst time. I know. You know. It was literally the pits. It was like, oh, good. You know, we were at every event and everything was just crumbling around us. And I guess you were just at the point when social media was just starting to erupt. Yeah, I. Uh, I it was 2009 when Twitter started or when I joined Twitter anyway. And that was my, I was, I got into trouble internationally on my first tweet. <laughs> that doesn't surprise you somehow, actually. <laughs> I mean, um, it was carried on. It was unbelievable. <laughs> 
unbelievable. I was being like shamed by Australian tabloids over in uh, like over my first ever tweet. It was uh, and it was a careless, shitty tweet that I thought I was being funny and didn't understand. Humor does not translate well over uh, text. Um, however, you left eight years ago before it was trendy to denounce this industry and before it was trendy to say it is an unacceptable way to live Mm. to treat people like we are contributing to a sickness in society and therefore I didn't want someone to come on here who's only just had that kind of revelation now that we're all turning on the tabloids like I really wanted you here. (laughs) I think that having eight years to just sit back and look at the industry and look where it is and look at the way that all of the news outlets are pretty much still doing what they were doing back then. I mean, maybe in a bit more of a legal way. But um, if we take it right the way back to when I first started in 2001, that was a completely different celebrity culture. You know, we didn't have social media. We were still coming off the back of the Spice Girls and all of these people that had had this amazing freedom in their career of, you know, uh, yeah, sure, they had paparazzi and they had all of that to deal with. But they actually were able to have a bit of anonymity and they were able to... Control the narrative a bit. Yeah, they were, you know, and also from my point of view, you know, me and you, we would go to many an event and I think we went to Blue in Every Party for about four years on the trot, but um, it was fun back then. You know, we were going out with Courtney Love. We were in the same restaurant as Madonna. We were going on tour with Kylie and getting a really good exclusive. We were kind of in this amazing bubble And it was like going behind a velvet rope. And I feel like within those kind of six or seven years when it kind of got into the noughties and everything started to really get, I don't know, pretty twisted and effed up, um, we realised that it wasn't a game. You know, there there was so many serious implications by the fact that as showbiz journalists, we were basically making a living and... Uh, reveling in people's misery. Yeah, it was a it was an odd it was an odd transition, wasn't it? Because I still remember the kind of the golden era of the you know the Cameron Diaz, the Julia Roberts era, where it felt like yeah. there was like an element of royalty to them. And, and should there be that kind of hierarchy in society? Probably not. However, it felt like the media and talent had more of a kind of mutually beneficial relationship. But there was a respect of like, I need you, you need me. Let's be nice mm. to each other. Let's be real. Some, it's not always going to be perfect and rosy, but let's get along because we're in this shit together. And what I feel yeah. like, you know, you told me a story about you being in a toilet with Courtney Love and she was putting her makeup on you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, this is, you, I could, you could that just. Was one of the, that was one of the first things that I did when I became a journalist. I'm working at the Mirror. I'm 21. I have no idea what I'm doing. I've yeah. come from a local newspaper where I wrote about dog crossing a road. I got out of there in eight months and I go and start working for the Piers Morgan. But, you know, at the time, working for him was brilliant, you know, because he was such a supportive editor. Obviously, there's questions about the person nowadays, but that was brilliant because I was out on that scene and caught me took me into the loo at the Lord of the Rings premiere. That's how old we are. And she took knickers out of her bag, put them on my head, said she'd do the interview while she's having a piss. And then comes out. She talked to me about Kurt. She, you know, she wasn't in a very good way. It was, you know, looking back on it, it wasn't really the best time to be interviewing someone. But at the end of it, I do remember that she kind of slapped me around the cheek. and She said, if you stitch me up, I will hunt you down, motherfucker. She just walked out. And I was like, 
that's showbiz, you know. That's someone that gets the game. We were all working out. I wrote a thrilling piece. She was really happy with it. She sent me a message about it. And, you know, Courtney's one of those celebs that's always had a source on the inside. You know, she's worked with the media and that's old school. It's not like that now. No. And and now it's kind of turned from a from a mutually beneficial relationship and a relationship of some respect and some trust to at least report fairly into showbiz journalists kind of turning into spies. You know, they 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 are now, they have become people who get planted at the backstage area of festivals or in restaurants or clubs. I know that you have experience of that, of of, mm-hmm. of, of seeing that at least. Um, I mean, that was my first job. You know, I had to be a sleuth that was going to nightclubs. I was in China White with, you know, P Diddy one night, Eve and Gwen Stefani the next, Spice Girls. You know, it was it was pretty so full on. You were invited to come and sit with them. Oh, well, no, well, I just sidle up. You know, right, at one point, yeah, yeah. I do remember being on a dance floor with all of these bodyguards, and it was just me, Diddy, my friend that had invited me, and I'm just having a chat with Diddy. And you know when you're like, God, what is going on? Like, I'm 22, I've just got into this yeah. industry, and I'm partying with P. Diddy. And by the way, you'd be going home at 5 a.m. We didn't have internet. We couldn't record anything. We couldn't go, oh, could I get some quotes? I was typing them in a Nokia 8210 and sending them to my editor going, yeah, remind me to tell you about that tomorrow when I got home blasted at 5 a.m. and then back at my desk by 10. Yeah, it was, a, it was you were kind of living the rock and roll lifestyle that they were living, which was slightly worrying in some ways. A hundred percent. kind of, you kind of came out at the end of it. I remember I always kind of had a break before I changed jobs and it usually involved a dark room, curtains closed, golden girls repeats and just hoping that you could kind of get up after a few days and just feel normal. You were the secret 3am boy, right? That was the plan. Yeah. So I kind of joined the girls when the 3am column for those that don't know was pretty much their height of celebrity gossip and they weren't nice people. You know, they were, they were there to push buttons and they were there to be proper showbiz journalists and have an opinion. Um, They were kind of a bit like what, people have got as power now you know they they could say what they wanted about people and thought they could get away with it right in those days you kind of you knew that you had to take some shtick to get your name out there and to be in that position so even though they were kind of arch enemies between showbiz columnists and the celebrity both parties knew that without one the other wouldn't exist so it was it was a different time yeah, I remember my first understanding that the press weren't on my side or the press weren't necessarily to be trusted was 2009. This is going way back. I was with a singer called Will Young, who was huge in the UK at the time, and mm. also one of the only openly like out gay singers. So there was like so much extra media interest in him at the time. And we mm. were talking and having a very you know open chat uh, at a... Uh, at a festival bench together with a little table at it. And, and a journalist had been with us. And as soon as she got up to leave, we started chatting and I started really opening up to him about how I was struggling with uh, what felt like very overnight success. And he just put his Mm. hand over my mouth immediately, just very, very quickly and firmly and, and made a kind of silence gesture with his own 
hand and mouth and then hit her phone. He hit her Blackberry that she'd left at the table and it was recording. And that was the first time I'd understood that, oh shit, so you can't, you can't say anything anywhere. You can't do anything from the 3am girls in that column I learned, like to piss in complete silence and get in and wash your hands and get out of the toilet because they would hide Mm. in the toilet cubicles to be able to hear what was being said by the celebrities. Like I, not you, I mean the the girls. No. And I, um, and, and it was, uh, it was, it was hard to get to know anyone um, from your side. And I think really only you and one other woman were the two that I ever could have, like, trusted to even have a basic conversation with because it felt like, you felt like you were being hunted when you were on the I receiving mean, end of it. I just, just to give you my side of things yeah. and how I was thrown into it. You know, I was, if you imagine just being a 21-year-old that just got this job, I think I was 22 and I was told to go. I was like, you're on a flight to Amsterdam. And I thought, okay, cool. Wow, yeah. Amsterdam, that's so glamorous. You know, I'd only ever flown to, I think, New York to interview Shakira for one hour and then flown straight home. So I was like, Amsterdam sounds cool. And I got there and they said, right, when you get there, Robbie Williams is staying in the Grand Hotel. So we booked you a, a hotel room in the Grand. And I was like, wow. So Fucking hell. At the Grand. Yeah. You know, they put some serious, they have money then. They've got no money now. And I kind of sat in reception after having a shower, all posh, you know, going, oh, cool. What's going to happen tonight? Robbie was probably at his worst with his his addiction problems. It was the MTV Awards. Robbie never showed, but about 11 p.m. that night, Gareth Gates came down the stairs. And that was really my only option. So I had a photographer with me and I had to... Well, I checked with the news desk that they were keen and I just had to trail him while he went through the red light district. And you can imagine what they did. It was, you know, pop star Gareth Gate. I think he was 18. I mean, he was so young. Yeah. And I exposed his night in Amsterdam, looking in windows and he went to a club, which let's face it, it was a very famous club in Amsterdam, which was known as a bondage club. Right. It was like one guy wearing leather in the corner of a room, but suddenly it was like, a big deal but you know you look back on that and you just think not only was I going to follow around Robbie who I've got loads of respect for and he really wasn't in a position to have a journalist following him around yeah um I didn't really understand the implication of what I was doing as a as a person yeah to somebody like Gareth who was 18 years old you know and I don't know whether he knows it was me I didn't ever get to know him I knew Will a bit but you know um they were so famous and you were just using their, you know, it was a two-hour walk with their manager to paint them as different people. A hundred percent. And I mean, this look, there's so many things to discuss. I also want to make sure that I don't sit here from a position of like perfect little like princess and victim. You know, I was also no. somewhat halfway between the two cultures because as much as I was a public figure, I was also a journalist in that I was a TV journalist. So I was interviewing mm. people on television and I, you know, have spoken out for years about my regrets on T4 of being part of what was quite a snide culture of just Mm. hipsters who would be 
like provocative and rude to really famous people. And it felt like it was okay because it was part of our British culture to kind of punch up. You know, you felt like, oh, well, if someone's more powerful than you and more famous than you, it's fair game to sort of like poke at them on live television. Mm. And it was something that I always felt hugely uncomfortable with. And I would always beg and like push back and not want to do it. I remember this kind of the the kind of breaking point for me was being trying to, was was you know a producer at T4 trying to force me to play a game with Tiny Temper who's a a rapper who no sorry with Tinchy Strider who's a rapper who's uh, already small in his he's already small in his stature and that's why he's called himself that name uh, Tinchy Strider and um, they wanted me to play a game with him called What Things in the World Are Bigger Than You on live television that he wouldn't be prepared for where we go through things in the world that are bigger than him. Um, and I'm already five foot 11. I'm already significantly taller than this man on television. We live in a culture mm. that belittles men who are shorter than women. And they want me to mm. take a 21 year old, small black man and humiliate him on television as I tower over him. And I said, no, that was the, that was the final time where I was just like, no, fuck you guys. Like, this is it. I can't like, just fire me. Yeah. And the producer threw a chair across a room in rage with me uh, to kind mm. of intimidate me and then like stormed out of the room and that was it. That's when I just moved to radio. I was just, I just didn't want to do it anymore. I couldn't be complicit in that, but I was still a bit complicit in it. I was still a bit snarky. I was still a bit rude. And it's only now that I have become an actor where I'm on the receiving end of that, that I understand how that feels. And so I do, you know, part of why I wanted you to come on here is also, is not just to showcase you as someone who did that but just to say that we were all hypernormalized in a culture that was really gross and weird and dehumanizing the way i used to speak about celebrities on online was so dehumanizing and now fucking come to la and i have to meet all of them or my boyfriend works with them and i have to apologize to them uh, even though they don't know about the thing i just feel this need to like repent this, well, this needs exactly, to just you know i i will tell you this i kind of feel like at the moment with what's happening with showbiz journalism, mm -hmm. celebrity journalism, I don't know whether it's exactly the same in, in Los Angeles, but, you know, a lot of the old school people and all of us that were there in the old days, yeah. we've, we've taken time out and we're looking at what's happening. And, you know, in light of loads of things that have happened in the last few months or years, you know, we're realising what we did, you know, and we are repenting. We're going through, you know, when I was at uh, one of the celebrity weeklies, I, Amy Winehouse died... Jay Goody died. Britney Spears had the biggest mental breakdown and we basically treated her like a circus animal, you know, and it's a very hard discussion and something in a way that I do want to pull you up on, Jamila, just because I think it's an important discussion that we, yeah. we think about the media in three separate ways. Right. I think there's a paparazzi problem. Yeah. It's a big problem. There's the publications themselves. Yeah. And then we've now got this problem with the public and the power that they exactly. have. Because they've become the snarky showbiz reporter mm -hmm. that we were 12 years ago. And that's really worrying because you can't, you know, we're not going to be able to stop that. It's the internet. You know, people are going to say mean things. And it's very hard to manage a celebrity now. Like, I don't know how you deal with what you put yourself through. I have struggled uh, with uh, handling being in the public eye. I've really struggled with knowing how to be my authentic self, but also not to the point where I make myself vulnerable to the world and where my vulnerability can't be used against me. As we know, because I've said 
in the public eye several times before I have tried to take my life uh, during the course of my career because everything just got so overwhelming and I am an emotionally vulnerable person who was in a world that I wasn't prepared for. But I also feel as though now it's become easier for me because I've started to understand that I, that this isn't all as personal as I think it is, that when I receive personal attacks, they're not necessarily specifically designed for me. I've started to wonder if there's a bigger pattern at play. And I feel as though I've been alive long enough to watch this happen to so many, in particular women, the build up, Mm. build up, build up, rip her down, that it feels so formulaic that I have started to feel as though, oh, this would have happened to anyone, probably more so because I poke the bear more than my peers. I understand Mm. that. I take responsibility for that. I also fuck (laughs) up more than my peers. Hands up. Yep. Um, But... (laughs) But it does feel as though I'm sometimes being used as an example, right? Like a don't speak out, don't be different, don't fight back against the press, otherwise this is what we'll do to you. Like kind of like a warning Mm. shot for other women in influence or even just women in the world. Like don't stand Mm. up, don't stand out, don't speak out, otherwise you will be punished. And so there's something weirdly empowering in realising that pattern because then it makes me, it just kind of gives me a bit more of a feeling of, oh, no, fuck you then. I'm not going to play that game. Do you think in your, like, over the course of your time when you were working within tabloid media, like, am I, am I crazy here? Is there a system of build her up, build her up, rip her down? I mean, to be honest, isn't that celebrity? I kind of feel like that's part of the whole fame game. And I don't think it's necessarily something that's been introduced um, that recently. I think that if you look back to, you know, Hollywood days, the Royals, Diana, you know, it's something that's been brewing. And I think probably from Princess Diana is when that really went into the spectrum. And we really, uh, that whole few years where she was coming to becoming who she was, um, the media obviously had a field day. Mm. And there, you know, there were other celebrities that were standing up and that were strong. There was the, the Madonna, you know, Madonna was like, having playboy pictures of her nude being put in the press. The next day she was selling out Wembley and then she was thrown back down. You know, it's a format that works um, for the media. And it's a format that unfortunately I don't really think has disappeared in any way. I feel like at the moment with everything that's happening, I feel like women are getting a much bigger voice. I feel like there's some sort of movement with regards to the positive effect of social media where people are finding their feet and they're actually saying, "Uh uh-uh, this isn't the way it should be. But, you know, let's look at a show like The X Factor. I was week in, week out interviewing the likes of Danny Minogue, who I I became quite good friends with at one point, um, and Cheryl Cole and all of these kind of play puppets that were on the television, you know, when you were back in the Mm -hmm. UK. And... Both of those girls didn't know what they were getting themselves into. They couldn't handle the machine that was at work amongst them. They didn't realise until it was kind of too late that they were the puppets and they were sat on those panels. And for that TV show, and, you know, I'm sure that Simon would hold his hands up, um, he he played them, you know. They were the media puppet. What do you mean? One day everything would be good. I mean, as in... If there was more controversy around their lives, then more people were tuning in to watch the show. It was every slice of the pie. It wasn't just two slices that they could take. It was, 
the element of um, the media wanting to know about their private life, every inch of their private life, who they were dating, who they were divorcing, what was happening with their babies. Um, Which one's thinner? They were pitting them against each well, other. Well, yeah. that happened, yeah. you know. And do you remember that year when it was Danny versus Cheryl? Mm. That was so uncomfortable to watch, especially when I was on set and I was seeing what they were going through. And, you know, they, unfortunately, they probably would have gotten absolutely fine, but everyone was just going, oh, well, what do you think about Cheryl? You know, Cheryl looks like this. Or, you know, Danny was then being pitted against her for the fashion, being pitted against her for the size of her body, being pitted for what she says in the press. Every inch of it was just a, a lynch mob. It was really hard to watch. But how is it such an organised system? That's the thing that I don't understand. And, and you may not even have the answer for this, but the thing that blows my mind is that it's the same thing again and again and again. Let's take Jennifer Lawrence, for example, Ooh. right? We, okay. she, she, came, she comes out of nowhere, right? She's 19, 20 Ooh. years old, hilarious, really good at chat show interviews, super relatable, talking about farting and, you know, getting blackout drunk <laughs> and throwing up in front of like Miley Cyrus, all these different things. Like she was our relatable girl. She fell over when she was going yeah. to pick up her Oscar. We thought it was the most charming thing <laughs> in the world. And then a year and a half goes by and the attitude is now, and I'm definitely holding the public responsible in also being complicit in this, but the attitude is, but the attitude is like, oh God, it's her again, attention seeking, trying to be so over relatable, like, oh look, she fell over again, probably faked that, Mm. everything about her is insincere, stop pretending to be so relatable. It was so interesting to watch us hate her for the same thing that we had loved her for such a short period of time ago. And I talk about this a lot on my Instagram where I think that that I think the method is like you build her up, build her up, build her up, hyperbolize how amazing you think she is. And then mm. I think that you overexpose her. So the public becomes sick of her and starts to think that she's got a big head. Because if someone's being bigged up this much all the time, they must become a little bit arrogant. And if they're not constantly fighting all of the compliments all the time and constantly self-deprecating, then you think, mm. ah, she's bought into her own hype. Therefore, she's now primed for a takedown. So when the media starts savaging her with smears or she's difficult or she's unlikable or she's she's been dishonest about this, etc., we're mm. so like our appetite is is ready. Well look at Taylor Swift. It's yeah. the same as Taylor. Like she's just gone through exactly the same thing. And you know, I have been thinking about this because I know that we touched on this earlier, but the different sides of when you say media, it has to encapsulate the public because, you know, the power of like the meme and us waking up and seeing something written about Taylor, that can take people down. Look at Mel B when she went on to, you know, when um, Avid Merian did his takeoff of Mel B. You know, he took her out. Craig David got taken out. But um, for anyone who doesn't know, this is a comedian uh, in the UK. <laughs> Lee who, Francis. Yeah, Lee Francis, who <laughs> used to make... Um, some quite racially insensitive parodies of uh, some people. Uh, and and like, I don't think he's a bad person, but it was, uh, in hindsight, I think everyone's got some... In a time when yeah. all of us didn't realise there was a racial issue. Yes, exactly. And so he, but he would make these, um, these parodies, comedic parodies of famous people. And with mm. a couple of them, uh, it kind of like fucked up their careers. But I think a big part yeah. of my drive, a big part of my wanting you on this this uh, podcast, a bit big part of what I talk about online constantly regarding this media cycle is that there can't be mm. another one. We cannot continue to sit back and watch another person take their life or have a nervous breakdown or mm. develop an eating disorder mm. or whatever or lose their entire career that they did because they loved something, they were good at it, they got put on a pedestal over it and then kicked off. 
I, mm. I'm trying to understand the system so I can figure out how we break it. There's the, it always feels like the media, even though they're all competing with each other, the cu- publications, the ones that are competing with each other, are all still always on the same timeline of, we love her, we love her, she's amazing, she's amazing. Mm. Oh, she's made a mistake, we hate her, we hate her. Die, die. The trouble is, the trouble is to me, I'll give you a very simple analogy of that. Yeah, go on. Misery sells. Yeah. Misery will always sell. You know, whether it's Kerry Katona, it's Jordan, it's Jennifer Lawrence, it's Taylor. If their life is in turmoil, they're going to sell copies. They're going to have clicks. They're going to have clickbaits. It's going to become more and more. The beast gathers pace. Yeah. That's the thing that we've got to break. If that could break then we'll be halfway to solve it, but it's a really big issue. And it's all women that you're naming. I'm not saying that men yeah. completely escape that disgrace, but we have a very yeah. different attitude. It's 95% women who go through that cycle, mm. who are who who we enjoy, the, the, we well, love a fallen woman. Well, just look at Johnny Depp, Jamila. You know, yeah. all that's gone on in the court case and all that was dragged out and everything that we found out, he's kind of got away scot-free. yeah. It's like he's going to continue his career as normal. He's he's not a woman. He's not been bashed. He's not going to run away. He's not got to Jennifer Lawrence and disappear for like four years. He's probably shooting another film right now. I mean, yeah, that's happened. Emile Hirsch, like Quentin Tarantino, all yeah. the things that loads of these people have been accused of. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure Casey Affleck will keep working. Um, Shia LaBeouf thought he managed to get away with for years and years and years. Mm. And we'll probably well, still... But yeah. but yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised if Shia LaBeouf is afforded like that big sort of GQ interview where he comes back and like he did after the last time he was accused of doing mm-hmm. something heinous. He came in and did a big kind of heart to heart publicly and was like, you know, because of my childhood, I did this. And then he made a movie about how difficult his childhood what childhood was yeah it wasn't as fucking hard as mine not to be a judgmental prick <laughs> but i'm just saying uh, and i haven't hit anyone um but my point being that that, that we, we we make more space for men's redemption and we make mm-hmm. absolutely no space for women's redemption and i just mm. want to figure out what that sickness is obviously it's misogyny and patriarchy but like why mm. do we love a fallen woman so much well, I guess for the media, they know that they know that things are going to turn and that there's going to be an up, you know, an uplift and people are going to want to see somebody, you know, that pe- the public will get behind them. They'll want to see them get back to normal. They'll want to see Jordan recover from her foot operation or they'll want to see uh, Megan get back on her feet and do something good for children or whatever she's going to do with her Do you think that they actually feel that way? Because I don't know if that bit exists. I don't think that bit exists for women. I don't think we are actually hoping. I think we can't believe it. I think the women who come back will stick around are the anomaly. And I think actually what what the media expects to happen is we will disgrace her and then because in particular women are set up with the belief system that we must be approved of and liked by everyone, Mm. she'll just fuck off and then there'll be a new one. I don't think we're ever planning on the comeback or hoping for the comeback. And when it works, sometimes the media gets behind it. But it's very rare I mean, that I, I think guess, they're ever planning on the comeback of a woman. I guess that Meghan is very lucky in the respect of the US because they're kind of sticking a lot more behind it yeah. than what the UK are. You know, and the UK media, I think they're done. I don't think there's going to be much for a comeback for Megan as far as the media are concerned over here. But saying that, there's still publications like Broadsheets that will work with her on her, her dress campaign for the charity that she works with, Smartworks, and they'll put her on a cover and they'll give her an opportunity to speak. You know, they still want a part of her, but whether they're supporting her fully or they're just looking at their sales. Yeah. Sort of thing. But is it so... 
is there ever a conversation about it of we love her now or we hate her now? You know what I mean? Like, you know, like there are these editorial meetings in the morning sometimes. Conferences. Yeah, well, they are. Yeah. Like, they're conferences. Yeah. Um, I remember my mate who worked at um, one of the bigger uh, tabloid <laughs> newspapers referred to it as um, the vagina monologues. That's what the morning meeting was 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 referred to because uh, the male editor would call every woman that they were discussing, every woman in the public eye, a cunt. And so therefore, the mm. because that's the word he would use about all these different famous women, none of whom he knew personally. That was how much he dehumanised them and degraded them mm. in that meeting, which is full of female journalists, by the way. So he's just saying that openly about women in front of loads of women. They then like laughingly referred to those meetings as the vagina monologues. Like There was a briefing about like who do we hate today who do we who do we love today well, how I mean, long are we going to love them the mirror, i was at the mirror in like what 2001 we did this thing that started called the, the thousand most irritating people in britain and every day we just berate someone for who they were you know it was that was that time i kind of hope that where we are now things have slightly moved on because I don't know about things being run like that. I think that there has been a lot of progression in, in UK media. You know, we were, we touched on this when we spoke before, but what Edward Enenfall has done coming into Vogue and putting black people on the cover, mm-hmm. like they should have been like 30 years ago, you know, that was a huge thing because when I was working for magazines, we weren't allowed to put black people on the cover because they would not sell. Now we've got an editor that has gone to the biggest fashion magazine, which was so white, it was unreal, and it was so conservative in its morals. We're now seeing someone that's coming in and trailblaze. That's a huge fucking deal isn't to that see someone doing unbelievable that. that in the last so 20 years. The, the, but, no, but also, isn't that unbelievable that 20 years ago you would be explicitly told that, that we can't put a black person on the cover because no one will buy it? You know? Yeah. It, it just didn't happen. It was, I think the only time I vividly remember there being a black person on the cover was Naomi Campbell chucking her phone at her assistant and that went everywhere. Yeah. That was, a, that was a really rare occasion. And it just, you know, not even Beyonce, you know, these people were huge stars, but it wouldn't sell for them. And they weren't willing to take, they weren't willing to take any risk on any sort of sale that would flop. So if there was a chance, even a 10% chance that, oh, actually, maybe Jennifer Anderson's a bit overexposed this week. Let's not go down that. We'll put Posh on instead. Or Katie Price has got a new boo job. Or, you know, it was, it was so ridiculous what you were having to kind of make judgment calls on. Mm. But, yeah, it was, it was, it's shocking looking back on it. It's terrifying. And it's, it's amazing how we all fall in line and how much I like, I remember. It's normalized. Yeah. Well, I used to fall in line. You know, I've said this publicly before on this podcast and in writing that I look back at how many times I used to watch like Anne Hathaway's Oscar speech, which now I look back with a different lens of not being a fucking bitch. And I remember I used to look at it being like, oh my God, that's so cringe. And I would like show it to other people and be like, this is so cringe. I look back at it now and I'm like, that's a really young woman who did an amazing thing, who was going through a lot emotionally and fucking prepared mm. an Oscar speech. Like I would prepare an Oscar. I'm obviously never going to even be invited to the Oscars, <laughs> but like if I did, well, you're standing in you front of fucking, be. you're standing in front of Brad, <laughs> Angelina, Jack Nicholson, like Meryl Streep. <laughs> You're not going to just wing it, are you? But we hate no. the idea of a woman being like pl- prepared, of having planned, of having maybe mm. expected it. How dare she have maybe thought she could have won in order to have even pre-rehearsed that speech? It is. 
I, we have, we just have to all look out for this in ourselves and just continue to make mm. sure that we don't help this cycle. I just, that was all. It was kind of like a period where I feel like media outlets sync up <laughs> with loving mm. someone, loving someone, loving someone, and then starting their downfall and just knowing that the public are such that, you know, we the sheeple will just fall in line. We have to stop falling in yeah. line. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week you know as you're bottling things up because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel you know you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to and this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week you just have this complete freedom honestly I think everyone should have therapy regardless of whether they think they need it because it's so amazing to have a confidant it's a journal that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. With chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection ice cream. Extraordinary dairy. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Will you tell me why you first got into showbiz? Uh, yeah. I love this reason. Well, <laughs> well, I really wanted to meet Madonna. That was basically the crux of things. And may I add, I'm just going to show you. Did you meet Madonna? I met Madonna. Oh, my God. <laughs> Dean but, is know, holding up a-, a picture with him and Madonna. Will you send that to me? Send me a picture of that so yeah. I can post it with this interview. <laughs> but I tell you, uh, the, the real funny story is the way that I actually got into it because I worked at a post-production house and we, we mass-produced all of Madonna's videos. Right. The company next door did. And because I was such a huge fan, they'd always go, oh, my God, do you want to see the new Madonna video? I'd be like, Yeah. So I got the video and I wanted to help her get to number one. And it was the video that she did for music with mm-hmm. Ali G. And I took a punt and I text, well, I, I 
Yeah, I must have texted. Dominic Mohan and Matthew Wright, who were at the Mirror and the Sun, I said, oh, I've got the new Madonna video. You know, is that worth something? Because I had a canary yellow fiesta that I needed to keep on the road. And to be frank, I was getting paid eight grand a year. So my morals were left slightly at the door. And within an hour, Matthew Wright had picked up the video and they did a, a kind of washout for the, for the video. And it went straight to number one. Um, which, looking back on it, was pretty shady to do. And especially, I have told Madonna's publicist, by the way, so I'm not being that yeah, shady yeah. nowadays. Um, but it was about, it, that was what it was about. And I kind of fell into this job that kind of just took me on a bit of a mad ride, really. I think there's certain celebrities that are able to deal with the machine. Yeah. And there's a number that can't. Yeah, I think some people get into it because they crave it. And then others, a bit more like me like at least the first time around, I really had no idea what I was doing. And the second time around, I just never thought that in such a huge country, I would make a dent. So I just went into it again, mm. slightly naively. It's probably why you've got away with it and you're feeling so much happier. I hope you're feeling happier. I'm feeling much happier. Yeah. It's easier to just sort Good. of blend in here. Yeah. Last year was too much, but other than that, I've had a great time. And here I feel as though, you know, the UK is a very specific melting pot and fishbowl of only a couple of celebrities. There's a handful and they just get rotated and rinsed and overexposed. It's why, you know, I think a lot of countries around the world are looking at the way that the British tabloids have handled Meghan, Duchess Meghan, mm. and just been like, yeah. how has this happened? How has this become so out of control? And it's because there's such a tiny circulation of people that the tabloids are obsessed with that, yeah. uh, I mean, that it's just like I'm it's just gonna, too much to even like fucking breathe. On Go on. But, I mean, when I was at Closer Magazine, for example, we had four names that we were able to put on the cover. And it was a little bit like what happened in the US, I think, because it was always Jennifer Aniston or yeah. Angelina that would really sell, you know, because of the, the Brad Pitt drama. But we had Katie Price. We had uh, Posh Spice, Victoria Beckham. She would mm -hmm. always sell. Um, Cheryl Cole. And it was so monotonous. And Kerry Katona, who, if you're in the US, you might not have heard of. But... It was a constant. She was a reality. Uh, no, so she was a Kerry Katona. She was, was an a, atomic kitten. She was an atomic kitten, and then kind of mm. became a household name because we became kind of obsessed with her. Yeah, her lifestyle and a lot of that was around the the sort of sadder parts of her life, like shaming her body or you know her, her going through relationship problems that would be hugely yeah. documented upon. Uh, with or without her consent. And so she became a kind of... I did think about this earlier, which I have a bit of trouble with. Because yeah. I feel like certain people like Katie Price, certain people like Kerry mm -hmm. Katona, they're a really rare breed in this business because in the old days, they fueled a lot of what was going on. Yeah. So much money was passing hands. Like, it was a joke. Yeah. You know, we're talking like 100 grand to do an interview. It was that amount of money, just for one interview. And nowadays, you won't even get a couple of grand. Like, it's just not, you'll get an interview for PR, but the value of a celebrity interview has just gone through the floor because it's all done. It's all out there on social. And Kerry and Katie in particular, you know, that it was literally getting to the point where you thought they were having a baby to get the magazine deal. Yeah. I, uh... Which I think is quite troubling. 
It is quite troubling, although there is at least a kind of like feeling of a bit more consent, even though those people maybe weren't mentally stable enough necessarily to handle the onslaught of what comes with that consent that you give. I mean, I've had paparazzis yeah. like reach out to me on DM. I was telling you this the other day being like, hey, yeah. I take, I take, you know, I'm hired by the Kardashians to like take their photographs, you know, so that they'll always look flattering or whatever in their like regular day to day pap shots. And um, I can do the same for you. And I was like, no, thanks, mate. I'm not trying to fucking caught the paparazzi like I'm and you know if they're business women they're flaunting their products I get it like whatever I'm not shading them I'm just saying that this is a whole culture where there are some who do actually plant the photographers who plant the stories who create kind of branding whirlpools but a lot of people I always don't. feel like we need to remember that the Kardashians are basically the Katie Price of America you know that's what I mean? why it's I bring not, them up yeah just to kind of contextualize really it more globally yeah, yeah. exactly it's it's a it's across the pond and it's it's pretty much the same stuff. Yeah, I know what you mean. So, okay, so some what were some of the more disturbing things that you saw or heard in your time? I mean, I kind of want to talk about Caroline Flack just because sure. I feel like right now it's a conversation that everybody is online and they're all saying be kind and they're all saying all of this stuff about how we've got to just be nicer people. But I feel like we, we very easily drop that to the mm-hmm. side. And I feel like my relationship with Caroline was interesting. I broke the story about her and Harry Styles, yeah. which at the time was a huge deal. Yeah. He was 18. She was 32, I think. 34, I think, article, yeah. Was it 34? I think okay. so, yeah. And, yeah. and the article that I wrote, I was pretty derogatory about her. Um, I didn't know her that well at that point, but um, that article really affected her quite a lot. And whereas a lot of showbiz journalists, you know, that was quite a big story. And obviously it went on for weeks because the tabloids would just repeat everything and then try and get a comment and then it would just move forwards. And I think they saw each other for a little bit. How did you break the story? Just out of curiosity. How did you, how did, how did people I find this shit out? Came to, babe, in those days, Harry was on the set of X Factor. He was literally a kid and they were putting together One Direction. She was presenting on Extra Factor and somebody saw them going to a broom cupboard and the broom cupboard shut and they were there for a while. And that was how it all started. But then it did turn out that they were seeing each other and it was, you know, they were kind of hook up on, they were into each other. But the thing that I was really regretful about and the thing that, caused Caroline a lot of pain was the fact that towards the end I put something like as the payoff um yeah because this one's not creepy because of the age difference and that was a derogatory to a woman because it was if the shoe was on the other foot we wouldn't even comment on the man's age mm-hmm. um and the thing that I'm quite glad about is that we had a couple of rocky years obviously uh, you know a couple of stand-up blazing rows but had you been friends worked. before that had you been sort of like friendly a little bit but i wasn't really i was quite young back then and i wasn't i didn't have many huge celebrity friends yeah it wasn't like we would go out for dinner or anything like that um i didn't feel like i owed or anything but you know yet again it was used in someone's personal life for a paper's monetary gain and it didn't leave a very healthy taste in your mouth. And ultimately, that's probably why I couldn't do that job for any longer, because you start to overstep the mark and you realise that people are actually just humans and we need to be a bit more respectful and a bit kinder to people. Um, and then towards the end, you know, we were really good mates. I was I look after a retreat in, in Ibiza and she'd been out there and we were in touch a lot on WhatsApp and I was trying to, like, really try 
quite shortly before she died, get her to go to a retreat and kind of lock herself away. And it's, it's troublesome that she didn't go because there are a number of factors. I mean, she was addicted to social media. She was addicted to fame. And she was one of those people that she's, she wasn't meant to be famous like this. Mm. She couldn't handle it was it was very hard on her. But also like we're not women in particular are not given any kind of like manual when we enter this industry. We are not told explicitly you're going to be treated completely differently to how your male counterparts are going to be treated. You're going to be held to different standards. We are going to become obsessed with you. We are going to slash your tires. That's what they did to her. The paparazzi would slash her tires so that she would come out, see the tyres, look upset, and then they would take the upset photograph and attribute it to the big story that was going on. Mm. This is how she was being hounded and stalked. This is how everyone gets hounded and stalked. I talked about the stalking of me. I know Mm. about what, you know, I I watched what happened to Amy because I lived around the corner from her, Amy Winehouse, that is. Like, you know, that was just a, a cloud of screaming men, men you don't know. And as a woman... You can't help, but your your senses, like your kind of like anthropological instincts are to feel mm. like you're about to get attacked. When you are surrounded, it's late at night. There are all these flashes going on. You can't see straight. None of these people have like a press pass to be around you, these paparazzi in particular. No one's, no one's, there's no mm. kind of certification. You just have to be a, normally a bloke with a big camera, an SLR camera, uh, with a big zoom on it. And then that just qualifies you as someone who's allowed to stalk someone and sit outside their house all day long. And so you do feel like you might get like sexually assaulted or something because they're just all around mm. you. They're all screaming at you and you mm. feel like you you can't logically override the fear that you're about to die. But that's what it feels mm. like sometimes, especially if you're in an alley on your way home or right outside your front door. One of them could just be a stalker. Mm. just stab you right there and then it was just wild half of the women that that have to go through all this as well they're literally the most insecure people in the industry yeah you know they're people that have so many demons that you just you don't quite know how they do what they do and why they put themselves through it because you're like well we're told it's normal that's the thing right so we're told by our Mm. publicists we're told by our teams by our managers like that's just how it is babe Mm. don't take it personally like just rise above turn the other cheek just you know don't respond when someone slanders you publicly don't respond don't add to it don't fuel the Mm. fire so you just have to sit there and it's so hyper normalized just like it is for you just like it is for the paparazzi just like it is for us or just like it was for us at t4 like it's fine Mm. it's a joke they can take a joke it's fine to make fun of 15 year old justin bieber to his face like he you know he'll get it it's a laugh we're all just having a laugh it's all just fun it's show business it's glitter it's glamour Mm. and you just don't you just don't, you can get caught in this kind of hate and not to excuse any of the worst offenders in this because there's been enough evidence documented over the years now. It's not just Caroline Flack. It's not just Megan. It's not just the Britney documentary. We have seen since 2007 when Britney had that breakdown, that's when this shit should have stopped rather than turned mm. up a gear. But you're right in that the public are why it has gone on to become so explosive and I say this all the time on my social media that we are funding patriarchy we are funding misogyny we are funding the like attacks of vulnerable women in particular when we when we click on these articles or when we buy these magazines they are only supplying our demand 
And mm. we as a public have That's a massive responsibility. Problem. It's the biggest problem. If we didn't yeah. buy it, they would stop selling it. There was a time where this didn't exist because they didn't know that there was an appetite. I think, it, do you agree with me that the turning point was just that we were sick of seeing airbrushed perfection and glamour and wealthiness? And we were like, there was a kind of, there was a, a sickness of seeing this kind of like perfect bubble and, and the first time that bubble was kind of pricked and we showed you the 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 fall down of like a Drew Barrymore or a you know mm-hmm. who you know went through addiction issues when she was younger etc when we started to shame them or show that they would they would have weight struggles too or they had acne too or they were going through a divorce they were getting cheated on there was a public appetite for that because we were sick of the perfect veneer and everything just went too far after that. We all I mean, have I, a responsibility. Just to show you the other side, but I mean, when I was at one of the magazines and I went into conference, I, was, I had a filthy hangover. I'd been at some premiere or something, like I used to all the time. And um, I had my shades on and there was a picture of Kira Knightley, Tori Spelling and Nicole Ritchie. And they were really thin, you know, horrible pictures taken from a buzz. All, you know, everything was bony. And I would just... Without thinking, I just went, oh, bones are back, and just thought nothing of it. Went back to my desk. Oh, yeah, cool. Could you write 800 words on bones are back for the cover? And I went, huh? And it said bones are back, and the three of them were lined up. And Mm -hmm. it sold 750,000 copies, which was one of the biggest sales of that year. A, I've got to deal with the fact that that came from me being a complete dick and having a hangover and just looking at pictures and making a comment. Um, But B, oh God, don't buy this shit. If you buy it, they're going to put more of it out there. You know, they're going to put more torment and more hurt and more judgment on, on women's bodies. And, you know, being truthful, I think a lot of those magazines are struggling now. I think the tide has turned and I think, Fortunately, the one good thing that's come from social media, from online and this clickbaiting, which keeps people permanently on their phones, is the fact that they're not buying magazines and they are struggling. There's no advertising. And you never know. I don't, I don't even, you know, there's already dead. They're down to like six of them being left. So maybe there is a turning point that's coming from the fact that we're in a pandemic as well as all of the other factors that are going into this. You know, there's no bugger going out and being papped at the moment. So there's a lot less to put in those pages, which is great. So aside from being sent out as like a plant sometimes and aside Mm -hmm. from being, uh, you know, sent to uh, interview someone, you had mentioned to me that, which I found fascinating and I've always wondered about, and I've been warned about this by other, you know, actors, etc. You said that Mm. they would sometimes already have the headline before you would even interview the celebrity, right? So that I'm, I'm not saying specifically you, but like they would do that with journalists, right? Where they had the headline already planned. They had the storyline oh, yeah. planned. And so you were just going to kind of, not you, sorry, as in the journalists would go to fulfill a narrative that had already been decided it was me before. every week. Oh, so it was you. Okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, of course it was. Yeah. You know, it was, um, that was part of the reason that I had to leave because celebrity journalism now, Jamila, as you know, you know, you're a 24-year-old that's working for the Man Online or one of those other titles where you come in and you just sit there and you're just typing up what happened on social media last night. There's not much to it. Anybody could kind of learn how to write the basics. But the reality was, was that in my last four years, I was working at a tabloid and, you know, I'd go out and I'd do 
I don't know, Danny Minogue, Sharon Osbourne, Victoria Beckham. And as you were leaving, they go, oh yeah, we want that line about Ashley Cole, or we want that line about her weight. Get her to talk about her kids. Is she going to have kids? Is she pregnant? You know, it was all of those lines that would end up with a front page splash. I don't want to do it that way round. That's not the way that we did it like near to 15 years ago when I first started. We didn't know what the hell was going to happen. We didn't know what story was going to come up. We didn't know if Callum Best was going to snog that page rego in the corner. You know, that was something that would happen off the cuff. But that's the way that journalism should be. It shouldn't be the headline being written before you even get to the interview because then I was going in kind of with this nervous anxiety going, shit, what if I talk to Victoria Posh Spice and she just won't talk about David or she won't talk about kids or she just wants to talk about her velour tracksuit that she's wearing. I don't know. You know, there were all of these things. So as a journalist, you were going in with the added pressure of knowing that you almost were going to stitch someone up. (laughs) You know, get Victoria on her weight. Get Cheryl on her divorce. Get this. I don't want to fucking talk to her. You know, I'm going to sit down with a celebrity who's a household name. Try not to swear, by the way. I do swear quite a lot. Yeah, you can swear on this podcast. And, I said cunt earlier. And, Sorry. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> um, and you'd sit down with them and you just, you just feel like a really bad person. And I've caught up with people like Cheryl Cole since. I bumped into them and kind of apologize but I kind of feel like it gets to a point where you just have to be a bit more honest and just admit which a lot of showbiz journalists who you know the big names they don't they they won't admit it because they're just thick-skinned scaly horrible people yeah there is a a there's a bloodthirst to some journalists the ones who've stayed in this game for a long time there's only a few that actually have any warrant to still be doing it because to be frank Shabby's journalism is quite weird right now. I yeah. don't think it's as powerful as what it was. No, because everyone can control their own narratives and people speak back now. We're not listening yeah. to our publicists anymore just being like, don't respond. We respond constantly. Yeah. And sometimes that, I mean, more mm. often than not, that goes tits up for all of us. But at least we have a chance to say our own, you know, piece. And a big part of me having this podcast was just my chance to finally be heard on my own terms in my own mm. words, in my own tone of voice, rather than via the lens of, you know, like the fact that I have to, I, I video any journalist who's recording me for print now. I make mm. sure that they know that they're being filmed so that if they stitch me up, I will release the footage of that interview of what I actually said. Like, that's how that's things so have to be terrifying. now. I am, yeah, I'm, but I'm fucking terrified. We would have just gone, no, we're not doing Jamila. No, no, we're not going through that. I would have just walked out. Have you had people walk out? No, no, because they want the interview. Really? Because, well, currently I've got oh, like, val- currently I have value. I'm sure there'll be a time where they're just like, no, fuck off. But they also know that I'm so fucking scary that if you say yeah. no and you walk out, I'll just tweet about it. Yeah. So I'll can I ask like, you one other question? Yeah, I go just on. want to ask you <laughs> You can ask me anything. I, a- I know, I'm asking loads. No, I love that. But with celebrity podcasts in particular, because that is what I see as the future right now. Yeah. I kind of feel like a lot of people are dodging you know, going to sit down with some old horrible witch from some broadsheet. We know, we both know opinion. exactly which witch you're referring to, but we won't name her. Go on. Lots of witches. But, you know, I feel like instead of doing that interview, which, let's be honest, it'll, it'll give them a nice front cover of the Times or the Telegraph or whatever they want to do. The thing that I find questionable in a discussion is if that A-lister is going on a podcast, they've got a lot of power. They're able to present themselves as they want to... And come across. 
Is that a shame that we're not able to get a true depiction of what that person is? Or is it only going to work with some celebrities and other celebrities will be true to their word and as they are? I don't know. Like, I, feel as, I feel as though not only do I give more honest sides of myself on this podcast, I feel like I'm the most myself I've ever been on this podcast. But I also feel as though my guests are more themselves in my podcast than they would be when they're opposite someone who traditionally we identify with being there to stitch us up or to take us out of mm. context or to, to fulfill a narrative because they know that I'm not going to edit them in any way. I'm just going to leave the conversation as is. They trust me and they open up and they know that they're being at least heard. They have the opportunity to be heard in their own words. When you're in a print interview, there's no opportunity. I mean, I literally, almost every interview I have ever done, they have just taken words out of a full paragraph that I said and used it to construct a brand new sentence with a different meaning. And so then I look like a fucking twat uh, on the headlines and, and the headlines go viral and everyone only reads the headlines and then, you know, indulgently rolls their eyes at me. And I'm well aware of what the perception of me out there on Twitter is because of these headlines that were written by fucking women, which is incredibly infuriating. Um, but th- this has given me the autonomy to be able to, you know, much to my publicist terror, I'm sure, because of mm. how open I am on this podcast. But this just has given me the chance to take it back and actually you know, be myself and not not fear who I am. The reason that we're able to be so controlled on our side by publicists, by the media, that we're so, we're so terrified of the press um, is because we are made to feel as though who we really are isn't good enough. What we really look mm. like isn't good enough, so it needs to be photoshopped. How we speak isn't good enough, so it needs to be crafted by a journalist. Like we are with we are chipped away at and told that we're just these defenseless, opinionless, kind of useless little pretty dolls who just need to be quote unquote protected. And so we mm. believe that. I believed that when I was 22. Does it change with uh, with London and LA? Is there a difference between how the publicist kind of works or uh, I don't know. I think I'm just old. <laughs> so I think, that, I think that everyone knows that I'm just sort of not going to listen. You know, I yeah. I direct my publicist. You're a publicist disaster nightmare. I am. I like, totally oh, am. No. But I was much, I was very controlled by my publicists when I was younger and they would make comments mm. about my weight. And when I would tell them I was struggling Did with, they- yeah. And they were, and when I was telling them I was struggling with my mental health, they would roll their eyes at me as if I was being difficult. And at 26 was the second time I'd tried to take my life. And it was only after that, that they started to understand that I was, that this is serious, that when we're struggling, Mm -hmm. we're not just poor little rich girl. We're like, we're, we're collapsing under the pressure of the scrutiny of this industry. And, Mm -hmm. and so I felt like I worked for them. Whereas now it's very much the other way around where I explained to my publicist, this is what I'm going to do. You don't, you're either in or you're out. And I'm, I have mm-hmm. a diehard group of women who are just like, we're all in for all of your, like, all of your chaos. I, I feel like it has started to really change. It I has changed. Like there's a big seismic shift. Yeah. And post me too. I think that women are allowed to have more opinions and we're not called difficult yeah. or moaning as much when we express an opinion. When we're, when we mm. say, I, I feel mistreated, we're somewhat heard mm. unless we're Meghan Markle. And then we're just like the devil, the the devil from hell, you know, which is how she gets treated every time she, you know, opens her mouth about anything or does anything. Do you know what? I, that, I'm only going to touch on this quickly yeah. because I don't want to get drawn in because yeah, yeah. I always do. But I, I feel the one thing that I really, really don't like about that whole story is 
I really wish the royal family would have realised that they could have modernised themselves. Yeah. This didn't need to happen. Yeah. I feel it's a very simple way of thinking that, look, they're not going to get on the throne. They're not going to cause problems. They're gonna, they can do their job. Just change up the way it is. We're not in the 1800s. It's like, yeah. <laughs> things have changed. It's such a shame that the royal family can change. And I feel like that is ultimately the crux of the entire issue. Yeah. And probably the biggest regret that the Queen's going to have about it. Well, neither of us want to get into any kind of mysterious accident. So let's not talk about that any longer. Um, uh... <laughs> want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I do think things are changing. They're not changing fast enough. My hope is that with the rise of the Britney doc, the Paris Hilton doc, all this like us... Us, there's a lot of on social media I don't know if you're seeing this or not of us going back over old interviews that at the time we thought were funny or we blamed the woman for or thought she was or being TV shows, yeah, or TV or, shows or we thought know. she was being uncomfortable we thought Janet Jackson just yeah. wasn't playing along you know that's what it was called yeah. like playing along you know when uh, when David mm. Letterman is like trying to push you and humiliate you about your nipple coming out of the Super Bowl which you've been disproportionately blamed over rather than Justin Timberlake who pulled your fucking tit out in the first place mm so fucking pissed at him for so many reasons um but i uh yeah hashtag fuck that guy but uh but uh but when she was just trying to be like oh i don't really want to talk about that we would we would make her seem like she's no fun and that's how she would be treated and no was treated as a maybe when paris or her or any of these women would be like oh dave i don't really want to talk about this anymore letterman would keep pushing you know, it's uh, it's Paris is Paris is a force to be reckoned with. I mean, that yeah. woman, I've I've known her on and off for donkey's years, and the thing about her is, she's involved in every aspect of that business. You don't like behind the scenes. This is like a five hundred billion pound business that she's built, um, and I think now that she's able to, you know, she's she's not partying and going out like she was. Good, she's going to be around for donkey's years. Like she's still going to be going like Zsa Zsa Gabor selling perfume at the age of 80. I mean, she's so fearless and thick-skinned and I've kind of got quite a lot of respect for her. I'm not sure if that's how you feel or not. I definitely feel that way. After seeing her documentary in particular, I, uh, yeah, I um, slid into her DMs to tell her just how... Stop I did. It. I fucking did. I did. <laughs> I, I, like, I, didn't, I didn't think she'd ever read it, but I just wanted to tell her how moved I was by that documentary because I had no idea what she'd gone through as a child and just how extraordinarily resilient she is. And and reading that stuff about the fact that she was just a teenager when that sex tape was leaked one night in Paris. Yeah. It just... like yeah. Her, her, and that her wasn't resilience... Even that age wasn't even a conversation we didn't even question no we blamed her we blamed her she said oh she's a slag so no 
<laughs> I don't even rem- I don't even remember when it happened, but I just remember. You know, I also remember all the memes about Britney. Like, if Britney can get through two thousand and seven, you can get through today. Oh, and it's like a picture of her with a shaven head, like trying to break into a paparazzi's or break a paparazzi, you know, his window with an umbrella or whatever she was holding. Mm. I know that with the paparazzi, they are they are. They have this tactic. I, I spoke to a few um, once I'd kind of left the limelight and they didn't know who I was in England, in, sorry, in America. So I got chatting to some who were standing outside Catch, which is a restaurant in Los Angeles. And I was just kind mm. of, you know, I, I was just a, I'm a, a civilian at this point. So they have no interest in me, no idea who I am. They think I'm curious and I want to get into being paparazzi. And I was just, I just wanted to understand because I was so traumatized by the paparazzi in the UK. And I was like, so how do you guys like, how do you guys get ready to torment the person who's coming out or like how do you do you, how do you feel about standing out here like what does it feel like what should I be prepared for if I do this yeah and they said that they purposefully dehumanize the celebrity before they even leave the house that day so or while they're standing outside they in their heads as a way to protect themselves from the guilt of what they're doing because you're face to face with someone you can see that they're squirming they're uncomfortable they feel crowded or invaded or stressed or afraid and you just keep going you keep leaning in on that and the only way that they're able to do that is by telling themselves well they think they're better than us they're this like fancy rich celebrity like crying in their castle like they think that we're a piece of shit they treat us like we're rodents and uh, and they don't care about us they don't care about the people so fuck these people we should expose them and they kind of have this kind of mantra that they tell themselves in the morning before they leave for quote unquote work and i wonder scientology to me i know i know but it's really (laughs) but it is really but it is really interesting and this was quite a few of them were telling me this they were just like well you know Mm. as far as we're concerned they don't give a shit about us so why should we give a shit about them and they are treated with disdain by some people in the public eye. So I can't imagine how that feeling gets reinforced because they are like yeah. spat on or their cameras are broken or like they're physically attacked sometimes by celebrities. We've seen the videos. But there is this kind of dehuman, like deliberately dehumanizing factor. And I sometimes wonder if some of the people who are still in the game, still at the top of the game of like breaking stories about celebrities, like invading their privacy, like uh, crafting the narrative. I wonder if they, they must have to dehumanize the celebrity in order to be able to go out and do this. Did you ever see anything like this or hear anything like this? Like a way of talking about them that was dehumanizing? I mean, look, to be honest, I I remember when I first started going to Los Angeles, I became friends, a little bit friends with Perez. And he was just explaining up. Perez Hilton. Yeah. And he's, you know, obviously had his little moment and that's passed. Um, But... He one night said, oh, meet me down at the Abbey. And I kind of went, okay, cool. So I went and met him at the Abbey just in West Hollywood. And I said, why are we here? And I kind of wasn't really sure. And then Brittany came in and she was in a private area just on this little stage. And I remember being really alarmed that night because he clearly had someone that was literally with Brittany who had called him and said to come because she was going to be there. Mm. They've got people on the inside, you know, and this really leads to such a huge amount of trust issues that, and it's probably exactly the same now. You know, I'm friends with people, well, Poppy Delavine and Chloe and their little sister Cara has experienced the same kind of thing because they've, 
you know, they become very famous. Supermodel Cara Delevingne, just for anyone who doesn't know. (laughs) (laughs) She was always just Cara, like 14-year-old with a guitar behind her back. I know. You know, that's kind of how that was. And uh, I always find the LA side of things a lot more frantic and scary because the paparazzi are completely fearless. I don't find it as bad in London whatsoever. I find it really quite troublesome when it comes to Los Angeles. I feel differently. I, I feel the media, the press, is, the press is so much worse with but me in the UK. is that paparazzi or is that... Both. The, the it's paparazzi paper. and press and it's the photos. Like the places that I've... The only time I've ever had... Uh, a camera shoved between my thighs, like up my crotch, was in mm. London. Or one time I was in the back of an Addison Lee, that's just a, a car company that used to predominantly take people back and forth from events. But I was in the back of like a big people carrier and they climbed, they opened the doors of the people carrier that I'd run into to get away from them. They opened all th- like four doors and, mm. um, and I had a driver in the car who was screaming, who didn't know what was happening. And they got into the car with their cameras and were just flashing in my face. They jumped into my car outside mm. Soho House. Would you feel comfortable sharing one of your bigger heartbreak moments that you spoke to me about um, on our on our kind of pre-chat of, of realising the way that you were seen even by people that you were friends with? And I'm talking about yeah. the Peaches, Geldof. <laughs> situation yeah i mean so peaches geldof for those in america she was the daughter of paula yates and bob geldof of um band-aid fame and she kind of rose up very quickly into the celebrity world and socialite dj and stuff yeah she was doing everything she had some tv work she she was a presenter for a bit she was a really brilliant writer she had two kids she was with this kind of rocky vampy wonderful guy who was her husband and I got to know her really well and she was kind of one of the first ilk of celebrities that I really became friends with and we had loads of hilarious adventures and you know I took her out everywhere and kind of put her under my wing and made sure that I was I kind of protected her from the likes of Closer you know we'd do like Peaches Column and she'd talk about celebrity in her her own Peaches way hyper intelligent very opinionated to be honest, she's not that dissimilar from where you are. And I think that if she would be alive, because um, she sadly died from a heroin overdose, um, I think you and her would probably be kind of a meeting of minds. Uh, and we went to school she, together, so I remember her. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense. <laughs> you know, it really does. And I went to a wedding, um, which was fantastic. I think Hello covered it, you know, because she wanted to get it all paid for. And it was in the back garden of Bob's house with their own little church. It's really cute. And, you know, she was a very good friend. We'd talk about the celebrity world and she'd have an opinion on everything. And then she died and I wasn't allowed to a funeral because Bob, well, I guess it was Bob, you know, it was his decision. Didn't want anyone that was anything to do with the tabloids being there. And it's kind of. And at this point, you up. were like four years out of it, right? You had left yeah, the tabloids. I was, I was, yeah, I was out of the tabloids. You know, it, I had a phone call from a friend of mine that's a journalist and told me that Peaches died, and it kind of hit you like a ton of bricks. You know, this was much more than anything that had happened before. And it, I feel like when you're in the tabloid world, it's a stigma that it's going to stick with you for a long time. It's only just started to leave me now. Mm. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of benefits to being former tabloid because I know the way that that machine works. And I know all of the twats on the papers that you need to avoid and all of the people that work on the news desk. And I know the paparazzi to avoid. And I know what clubs to go to so that you're not in that vicinity. You know, I know all of that machine. And now I'm doing PR. I now know that side of stuff. So I now can guide these people through. And it has been funny because people like, like Katie Price, for example... She has you know, at one point wanted to work with me, but she wouldn't work with me because I was a former tabloid reporter. And I was like, what? I was like, your entire career is about the machine and, you know, whipping up a storm. And they won't work with me because of that. But I think it's fascinating that you've moved into PR because you are now, there is no one better skilled than you to protect someone against what they're up against because you know the inner workings of it. What was... Mm. What were the conversations like? Can I just ask between you and like other people who were in your circles? Was there, well, there at the time, yeah, back in the back in the day, like was there any kind of sense of fuck, what are we doing? Or at the time, was it just hyper normalized? Or was you know, was there a culture of egging job. each other on? Yeah, I'm talking about your peers um, back then at the time. Like, how does it work? Is there any kind of anyone saying? I mean, I imagine it was probably yeah. you, knowing from having seen you at the time. Was there any? Yeah. Were there any conversations of accountability or what the fuck are we doing? Or was it just so hyper normalized? Not at all. There wasn't one. It was everyone. It with if you imagine having a massive shot of adrenaline and you're in a viper's nest and you just want to bite the competition out of the way to get further up the ladder and get the story and get further than what the sun would because I was always the mirror. You know, it was fiercely competitive and it was not for the faint-hearted and you just had to... It was a bit like being on a Ferris wheel. You just couldn't get off. And that's why I look at people like Perez or TMZ and all of these people. It's exhausting. How on earth, you know, can they do what they do each and every day and go to bed at night because I just couldn't and that's why I had to get out yeah you left and you seem really well for it and I'm really glad you left such (laughs) a long time ago because I think you missed some of the most dangerous shit that went down in this industry um Mm. what do you most want people to know people out there who are reading these stories seeing the ways that in particular mostly women but also some men are you know seeing what they're subjected to what do you most want the takeaway to be i feel like there's got to be a number of conversations and i feel like um firstly with regards to the way that social media is working and the machine of the opinions and the continual baiting online from the showbiz journalists and the showbiz titles there's got to be some sort of group together there almost needs to be some sort of i don't know licensing where the paparazzi they can't be on the streets running after people the journalists it's got to be more controlled on the way that they're writing about people Mm -hmm. um it's really hard because it's so addictive the way that the showbiz machine works right now I can say all I want about this. I'm the first that wakes up and goes on the sidebar of shame and scrolls down to see what happened last night. Yeah. You know, then there's responsibility and accountability that's got to come from, from Instagram. You know, there are certain new social media platforms that are trying to launch right now that won't allow likes and won't allow comments. 
But that's going to take out the fun for all of us that want to see the spiky comments or, you know, the people that will go on and they will look at the comments. I don't understand why the Daily Mail needs to have comments. They are so vile and they're so damaging, especially from clients that I've had. I I don't want them to look at it, Mm. but they will. And there's no real reason why they need to be there. Yeah, they do that deliberately. Like the Daily Mail in particular, I think are quite insidious and that obviously I can't claim this as fact. uh, But it appears that what they'll do is they will hyperbolize how excellent someone is or how they look or how talented they are. They'll go on and on and on about how stunning they look, but they will use deliberately unflattering photographs where they've kind of like eyes half open. They're not ready for the picture. Their mouth is open. They're sort of like, you know, bending over and exposing themselves maybe, but they'll they'll write about them in such an effusive and hyper-flattering way in order to deliberately then egg on rageful comments that are just like, she's not that beautiful or he's not that talented or this, that and the other. Do you know what I mean? They will use contradictory photographs with contradictory language in order to egg on Mm. the mean comments and the mean comments, the chance to expel the venom of your own inner life. And I say this as a reformed troll, you know, <laughs> I hold my hands up and say that I was a, a miserable little fuck who used to take my own misery out on the rich and the famous, you know, on mm. people who just didn't seem real to me, people who were just strangers that I could p- cast judgment over because really I was just judging mm. myself so much that it was nice to have a break and judge someone else who I felt like it wouldn't harm. That is the mentality of a troll. And and they know that that fodder of riling them up in saying that someone's so amazing will bring out the rage and the bitterness and it will and the the comment section is where they're getting their engagement from their engagement is how they justify their advertising Mm. dollars so every time you comment on an article like that you are giving them proof of concept you are giving them proof to an advertising company whatever fucking like bullshit weight loss company or this that and the other is advertising Mm. on their pages that company is going to give them more money because they're getting more engagement like comments and likes so you're funding, you're funding hate every mm. time you participate in any way. When you share it, when you comment on it, even if you're commenting on it in an angry way, screenshot it and then comment on it in an angry way. Take away their money. Mm. Um, 100%. Another thing that I think really needs to change is I feel there needs to be education to the actual celebs because I feel that that is something that's very undernourished and I feel like there's not enough preparation for what happens to people. You know, all of these shows, I'm not going to mention the channel, but there's one channel in particular that are plucking kids from obscurity and they're chucking them into this machine and it's very, very apparent that they cannot cope with it. So why the hell are you not starting to give them some form of education on how to deal with it? And it's not just the press that's part of it, but the, the social media side of it and how to deal with the comments and how to deal with the judgment, the furious judgment and the rejection. You know, in the old days, people that were in Hollywood that were working for studios would have got training and it was it was a career, it was a job, it was a school. You were going and you were having classes and you had chaperones and you had people looking after you. Then start looking after these youngsters that are coming into this machine Unfortunately, it's not like when Big Brother started. This is getting serious. You know, people are starting to lose their lives. Yeah. So start to inform and educate. 100%. And, you know, not to sound too much like my character in The Good Place to Harney, but I am 
<laughs> friends with a lot of the most famous people in the world, some of them. And I, uh, I see that all those comments that you think they're not reading, they're fucking Everyone. reading them. They're reading all of these comments and they are unable to get out of bed some days. They are unable to get out of the house. Just like you, wherever you are, if you're at school, if you work in an office, if you work in a bank, just like those comments would hurt you, it hurts them. They are seeing it. You're not just doing it for clout and then other people are enjoying the witty, like hot take you had about that person. Like these are some of the most powerful people, people who've been in this business for 20 years who should be, you know, quote unquote, used to it by now. They are unable to move or breathe sometimes from the vitriol of online. So take ownership about what you participate in because it goes so far beyond just a joke online. It's out there, it's public and it's kind of forever because once someone's seen it, even if you delete it later, it's out there forever. And I have to live with my own, you know, previous decisions 10 years ago, whatever shit that I said about, you know, famous people in the public eye. And so do you when you're out there, anything that we did to contribute to it, we're part of the system. And we can, and what's enlightening about that and what I think Dean and I want you to know is that we made it, we can break it. Yeah. And I feel like you and I both want to be a part of breaking it. Yeah, completely. And I think it's a conversation and it needs to be started. And there's enough people that agree on this side. It's just working out the next side. It's it's the, the general public. Yeah, defund it, defund it. They will follow suit. We have all the power. We control the market. We control the publications. We decide who gets to be powerful and famous and which company gets to be powerful and and successful. We can take it all away, literally at the click of a button. Um, And so what's next for you, Dean? Well, I'm doing a bit of writing and I'm, I'm working on a few things. I think there's a conversation to be had. Well, I think there's a TV show to be had talking about the industry mm-hmm. and the glory days. Mm-hmm. There's loads of these shows that are coming through and I've got my PR company and I've got some nice clients. And do you know what? I just want to get up every morning with a smile on my face. And that is kind of when you're over 40, <laughs> that's what you start thinking about. Yeah. So Dean, thank you so much for coming to talk to me today. Before you go, will you just tell me, what do you weigh? I weigh to start a conversation about what news we decide to process. What choice do we make with what we put inside our brain? Because I feel like that is where we're at with regards to media and regards to celebrity journalism and with regards to how we treat normal people it's time to humanize people and that is what i weigh thank you for giving us an insight into how it worked and what it was like and how you felt about it and how i think a lot of people now are coming out of it and waking up and realizing that they were part of something so damaging and gross something that damaged so many more people than the ones we wrote about i really want all of us who are listening today to stop and think about how this has impacted the way that we not only look at public figures, but we look at ourselves. You know, when it comes to your body image, what's this done to you when you see someone fat shamed on a cover of a magazine? What did that do to the way that you then look at yourself if you were the same size as that person or bigger? Like, how has it impacted the way that you look at other people? How has it looked at the has it how has it impacted the way that you look at that you treat other people? Has dehuman has watching adults or like other human beings dehumanize people uh, on social media. And I don't just mean the media, I mean, you know, people on social media as well. Has that 
dehumanised you in any way? Has that made you feel like it's easier to say unkind and cruel things about other people that you don't even know or people that you do know even? Just think about these things because we've all been polluted and corrupted by this culture. And what's reassuring is that this culture is fairly modern. And so it, it, it came and it can go. <laughs> and we just have to be a part, all of us, from now of pushing it out before we lose another young person to this really toxic society. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Erin Finnegan and Kimmy Gregory. It is edited by Andrew Carson and the beautiful music that you're hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. If you haven't already, please rate, review and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support. I really appreciate it and it amps me up to bring on better and better guests. Lastly, at I Weigh, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iweighpodcast at gmail.com. It's not in pounds and kilos, so please don't send that. It's all about your just, you, you know, you've been on the Instagram anyway. And now we would love to pass the mic to one of our listeners. I weigh having a loving and supporting family. I weigh being a psychotherapist and a professional dancer. I weigh being grateful always and I weigh being kind and loving to others. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.